Welcome to an audio teaching from Windsor Park Baptist Church in Auckland, New Zealand. If you would like to look at the message notes or see some questions for reflection that take their lead from today's teaching, head to our website, windsorpark.org.nz and head to the online tab where you'll see services and series and you can download different resources from there. Thanks for joining us and we hope you're encouraged by today's teaching. I wonder if any of you have had an experience like me when you've seen a small dot of oil on your driveway underneath your car and you've thought, oh, it's just a drop. It won't be much. A month or two later, you're selling your furniture to pay for the engine repairs that you really shouldn't have ignored. Sometimes we can tend to miss little things that are actually quite important. And this is the case for the five verses that we're looking at today as we continue to read through the book of Romans in our Bible. For the last six weeks, we've been working through the opening three chapters. What has become a little obvious to those of us who have been preparing each week is that the opening theme through these first three chapters is a little bit repetitive. We could sum this theme up perhaps with this phrase. Righteousness, being made right with God, comes through faith in Christ alone, and there is nothing we can do to earn it. To those of us who have been around Christianese for a while, this is familiar language. But the fact that it is a repetitive theme should somewhat wake us up, because repetition in the Bible is deliberate. When something is said over and over again, there's a reason. While it might sound basic to some of us, It hasn't always been basic to everyone, and so we have to take it seriously when basic things are said repetitively over and over again. I would want to suggest to you, though, that the reason why a perhaps basic theme is so repeated by the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, is that the point he is trying to make is actually not so basic. And righteousness by faith alone is of such deep significance that Paul wanted to make sure that everyone understood it and understood its significant application. It's like he's writing it in bold and capital letters. After Aidan spoke so well from Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26 last week, especially from verses 23 to 24, that great verse we all know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that that came by Jesus Christ. It was tempting after that to skip over verses 27 to 31 because what they cover sounds a little familiar. But to skip over these few verses and their application would be a disservice to the big point that Paul is driving home to his audience who were a divided church trying to find their way in society, which sounds familiar. These few verses are written in the style that I mentioned a fortnight ago. Paul imagines that he's in a discussion with someone and he asks questions that they might pose and then he answers them. Verse 27, his question, where then is boasting? His answer, it is excluded. Another question, because of what law? The law that requires works? Paul's answer, no, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Another question, verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? And he answers his own question. Yes, of Gentiles too. 
since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. And another question in verse 31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? And his answer, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Now, let me state the obvious if you've been part of this series for the last six weeks. This all sounds somewhat familiar, but the more we have learned about Romans, the more we can see that these verses are crucial in addressing one of Paul's foundational concerns in the church in Rome. Remember, the book of Romans doesn't just deal with addressing what the gospel is, it is also practical counsel on a real live problem that was plaguing the church in Rome. The fact that Jews and Gentiles were not getting along, and it was Paul's desire to do all that he could to try and resolve their conflict and prevent it from happening again. Well, looking back, that has seemed a hill very hard to climb, sadly, for the church, even of today. What we haven't covered in this series yet is what had created the tensions Paul was addressing. So let's briefly get some more background, some more context that helps us see what was going on in the church in Rome that is still going on in the church in Auckland or wherever we are that Paul was addressing. The letter to the Roman church was written right after the Jews returned to Rome after being gone for five years. They've been gone for five years because sometime in the AD 40s, Emperor Claudius banished all Jews from Rome after accusing them of being missionaries, which included Jewish Christians. Of course, being persecuted for being a Christian is an age-old reality. The expulsion is talked about not only in Acts chapter 18, but also in the secular writings of Roman historian Suetonius, who lived between AD 69 to 122, and also Roman historian Cassius Dio, who lived between AD 150 and 235. 5th century Christian author Paulus Orosius also wrote about it, so history well documents these events. After five years of expulsion, of effectively being in exile, Emperor Claudius lifted the ban, and so all these Jews who had earlier dominated the church were coming back to Rome. But here's the thing. While they were outside Rome, the Gentiles, everyone who wasn't Jewish, had the church to themselves. And they introduced all kinds of cultural differences, stylistic differences, political difference. They were different people with different backgrounds and different outlooks on life. So now, after five years of change, the Jews were returning to a very different church than the one they had left. The church was doing Gentile music with the Gentile instruments. The pastor was wearing Gentile styles and speaking in a Gentile language. They were serving Gentile foods for morning tea. And Gentile teenagers were living in Gentile ways. So the culture that used to be in charge wasn't in charge anymore. And all these racial and cultural tensions were starting to flare up and create all kinds of internal challenges. The opening chapters in the letter to the, to the Romans are, are seeking to bring unity to the fundamental truths of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people. And that would overcome these tensions if they were embraced. Paul is trying to break down all the things that were bringing division and conflict and was seeking to bring the church back to the most important aspect that he wanted them to grasp. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ alone and is available to all people. I think it's important to note 
that unity among God's people was the major focus of Paul for the church in Rome. Now, it would have been easier for the returning Jews to just start a Jewish campus or to separate people out according to culture or belief or just get similar people hanging out with similar people who enjoy similar music and who wear similar clothes and who live in similar ways. But Paul's vision of the church was Jew and Gentile in one unified body, living in a way that is attractive and draws people towards Jesus. And it's miraculous to see that in action. Now, let's be honest, 2,000 years later, that still remains an elusive challenge. And it is one reason that here at Windsor Park, we don't separate off different campuses according to who might be better with others. Our, our elusive, miraculous vision is God's people being united by the foundational doctrines that we subscribe to in law, the Baptist Union of Incorporation Act 1923. There's only six of them. If we can live with the differences that exist between us that aren't doctrinal in nature, it truly would be miraculous. And that was Paul's vision as well a long time ago. I actually believe that it's supernaturally miraculous because we've proven time and time again that we're unable to do this without the Spirit's influence in our lives. What Paul is trying to drive home is that the answer for this relational breakdown is the gospel. And he writes the longest repetitive description on the gospel in the Bible to address this relational problem, which is in itself a lesson to us. Relational problems are best addressed through gospel realities. It's in the context of this relational strife that these five little verses come to us and they, they pack so much punch. Two groups of people, each with their own perspectives on life and faith because of their cultural differences, are in a heated discussion about who is more worthy to be made righteous by God. With the Jews saying it's them as they return to a different church in Rome, demanding that they're reinstated as the chosen people because they have the law of Moses on their side. If you're a Gentile, which is probably all of us who aren't Jewish, you can see why that would rub you up the wrong way. An age-old problem is at play. Selfish pride in what both sides thought was right and an inability to be flexible enough to hear what Paul is saying as being from God. One side in particular thinks they're better than another and there doesn't seem to be any ability to have healthy discussion. Sound familiar? Now, this is what Paul is hitting for six with the key question and an answer. Where then is, is boasting? It's excluded. The, the Jews were prone to boasting. As they looked back over history, it was them that God chose to work through. It was them who were the recipients of the law of Moses. They thought they were superior to anyone else. They thought that they were morally and intellectually superior and thus, they were closer to God than anyone else. They had privileges. Paul himself was a Jew. And earlier in his life, he subscribed to that same thought process until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So he knows what he's talking about. Perhaps this is why the repetition. He knows how hard it will be to convince the Jews that they aren't morally superior to anyone else. And that when it comes to living up to the law... Maybe they aren't as good as they think they are. So to the Jews who are boasting 
that they were somehow superior to the Gentiles because they were adhering to a bunch of rules, Paul says, in my paraphrase, um, you're not superior because unlike every religion that demands some kind of standard to be met, the Christian gospel says it's irrelevant because righteousness is available to all people through Christ. Note, all people equally. The next Q&A asserts this reality. Because of what law? The law that requires works? And his answer, no. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This conversation flows as Paul then writes a question from the perspective of someone who isn't Jewish. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? His answer, of course, is yes, of, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, non-Jews, through that same faith. And the final question and answer in this section is back with a, a Jewish question answer. Do we then nullify the law by faith? And his answer, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Again, Paul is asserting, as he has done so repetitively, that the law has always had a purpose. It wasn't a mistake from God. It's, it's worked a treat perfectly in line with God's intention, which was to highlight that no one can live up to it. Everyone falls short, which is why we needed Jesus, the only one capable of fulfilling the law, which he did, while at the same time taking the punishment that we deserve for not being able to live up to the standards of the law. In these few verses, Paul is underlying the gospel reality that no one can boast about being better than another when it comes to being loved and accepted by the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel, Paul says, creates a new humanity that overcomes the divisions created by the boasting that is positioning people as being better than another. The gospel creates a new, inclusive humanity that overcomes any divisions that come from our pride. And this is what made the, the gospel in the first century so scandalous. It wasn't who the gospel excluded, it was who it included. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus for their righteousness has the same opportunity. Everyone. Are we still guilty of creating divisions in the church because of our pride? And who we think makes it and who doesn't? I think so. We sometimes think that we're morally better than someone else or that we live a better life than someone else or we're more successful than someone else and therefore more deserving of God's blessing, whatever blessing means to you. I know what that's like. I've been one of those people. Charles Spurgeon was probably the most well-known preacher in England in the 1800s. And is considered one of the greatest preachers in modern times. Well, in the West anyway. One of his significant quotes was a nine-word sentence he said in reference to the idea of pride and boasting. He said this, Be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. I don't think he was saying that we shouldn't have self-respect or self-esteem in each of those areas, but I think he was saying that we shouldn't boast that any of those areas makes us any better than anyone else in the eyes of God. 
Even though Spurgeon said these things many years ago from his observation of Christians living in London, I suspect they're still relevant for 2023, wherever we are. Let's quickly describe what Spurgeon might have been meaning about having pride in these things. Boasting in, in race. The division created between Jew and Gentile is a picture of the church since then. Or more a picture of humanity generally. Somehow the world has created an environment that fosters the idea that one group of people or one color of people are somehow better than another. Racism is perhaps more alive today than it's ever been. But for those of us who seek to follow Jesus, remember that different races is God's idea and his plan. Thinking that one race is better than another or that one color is better than another, it's offensive to God. One of Jesus' best remembered teaching is the parable of the Good Samaritan, in which he teaches that it's not someone's race, but someone's love that matters in the end. Revelation 5 verse 9 allows us to see that in heaven we will be believers from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Let's celebrate the racial diversity that God has created. It's a rich tapestry. But let's be clear, racism of any sort has no place in the gospel of Christ or in the church of today. Spurgeon talks about boasting about face. He would say that we shouldn't have pride or, or, or boast in our physical looks. And yet much of our world is based on physical appearance. Psalm 139 would say that to a large degree, we can't help our physical looks. We were all created by God in the image of Christ. And that means we're all spectacularly divine. Tell that to the person next to them. You're spectacularly divine. And yet I was listening to a podcast during the week about a church that put good looking people in their front rows because it makes for better TV. Interestingly, Despite all the images of Jesus that we see portrayed in art and theater, the prophet Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2 says this about the Messiah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire. (laughs) What about boasting about place? Thirdly, the gospel leaves no place to boast about place, which could refer to our place in life as rich, educated, successful, or it could also mean that we shouldn't be prideful about the location where we live or come from. Many people have an arrogance about what country, area, city, or part of the city they live in. We can definitely appreciate the beauty of places that are important to us. I mean, I'm from the Manawatu. It's beautiful. It's green because it rains all the time. But we shouldn't let divisions of wealth, education, or nationalism bring a hint of us being any better than anybody else. Interestingly, again, Jesus didn't come from a city that was esteemed. Nathaniel exclaimed in John 1.46 when referring to where Jesus came from, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? <laughs> what about boasting about grace? Spurgeon lastly said that we shouldn't boast about grace, which is normally an internal belief that we hold that we're somehow morally better than someone who lives a different lifestyle than us. Perhaps we think we're more prayerful or more wholesome or that we've never been to prison or that we've never been in trouble. And that leads to some kind of belief that God has been better to us than someone else or that we're more holier than somebody else that's perhaps fallen into disrepute. But in Christ, there is no good people or bad people. There are no people who have it together or dysfunctional people. We're we're all dysfunctional people in one way or another which is why we needed Jesus in the first place and is why Paul drives this point home. All are sinners and all are in the need of a saviour. 
None of us can say we're better than another. When we look at these few verses at the end of Romans chapter 3, we can join all the dots about the big issue that Paul was confronting over these opening chapters. Perhaps he's reflecting on the words that Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. This is Jesus speaking. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in another person's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to the other person, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Jesus calls people hypocrites that does that. Now, I acknowledge this is a very difficult concept to get our head around. And I know it causes a lot of conversation, which in itself is a healthy thing. But this is why the letter to the Romans is so difficult to grasp and why it has the potential to change a lot of things. But here's a suggestion. Maybe we should put the majority of our efforts into boasting about something that will lead others to want to embrace Jesus. Not our time spent in conversations about stuff that are immaterial. Maybe we boast about the gospel and in that time we'll become the most dynamic community that the world has seen. I think this is why Paul was so adamant about his boasting in chapter 1 verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written. Righteousness comes by faith. There's a beautiful song that we sing sometimes that encapsulates Paul's thought process through these opening chapters. It's called, O Come to the Altar. The first verse in the chorus say this, Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. The chorus says, O come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was brought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter your color, education, status in this world, no matter what you think others might say about you, this is a song that Paul would end his message with. All are offered right standing with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone. And it's not our job to say who's in and who's out. Let's pray. Father, we want to acknowledge this is confronting stuff for us. For those of us that have been in the church for a little while, we often think that we have all the answers, we are perhaps morally superior, and we sometimes judge people for all manner of different reasons. And yet these three chapters now have been telling us time and time again that that's not our role. Our role is to accept that, that all are made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ by faith, not by works, not by being good people or doing certain things. Father, this is hard for us. We're conditioned often to think of ourselves as being better than others. It's the way our world works, a hierarchy perhaps of behavior and outcomes. So Father, I pray that you would help us confront any prejudices that we might have in our lives. 
and that we would accept that we are no better than anybody else. And it is by faith in you that we are made right with you. Not by anything that we can do or the way that we live. Sure, things will change as we grow and mature in our relationship with you, but it doesn't change the fact that you're the one that deals with our hearts. So, Father, as we have rounded out these first three chapters, repetitive as they are, might we hear what you are saying to us and might we have the courage to adjust what we think about other people. And Father, I pray for those that might be with us today who perhaps haven't invited you into their life for the first time and I pray that they might hear the words that Paul is saying. It's an invitation to anyone to come and find a right relationship with God in faith through Jesus Christ. Father, help them to know that they are loved and valued and you have a plan for their life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining our audio teaching today. If there are ways that we can continue to support you or help you in your journey, please reach out to us. Head to our website, windsorpark.org.nz and you'll find various ways to contact us. God bless.